Today we'll be in one of the most popular verses, one of the most familiar verses in all the Bible. But I would also um, like to think that this is one of the most misunderstood verses in all the Bible. And so many people come with their own uh, traditions or uh, presuppositions to this verse. And today we're going to strip all that back. And we're going to look at what this verse actually means. We're going to go word by word through this verse, looking at the Greek. We're going to look at what it means. And, but we can't understand what this verse truly means without the first 15 verses of this chapter. This, this verse doesn't just poof, magically appear out of, out of midair. But it has been a uh, continuation of the first 15 verses of this chapter, this, this conversation with Nicodemus. And it brings us to verse 16. But uh, verse 16 does not stand alone. And we're going to show how this all ties together. Let me say this off the start. If you have a red-letter Bible, which that's only been around for several hundred years, um, when John wrote his letter here, uh, he did not switch it up and write in red to which words Jesus spoke. And these letters in red are, are the translators or the, the, the editor's opinion of where it began and which words are his. And John 3.16 is something that is of somewhat dispute. If you have a red-letter Bible, yours is probably going to have John 3.16 highlighted in red. It's going to be red as Jesus spoke John 3.16. However, there is a point in this conversation where uh, the, the conversation with Nicodemus ends and John's commentary begins. And there is a great debate on did John, John 3.16, should it be in red? Did Jesus speak these words? Did he say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Did he say that? Or did John, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, then come and say, on the basis of what we've just learned, for God so loved the world? So there's a great debate on whether John 3.16 should be in red or not. But that's not what we're going to debate today. But I wrote a few things down here before we read this verse out, but it is one of the most popular verses. We can agree with that. Uh, when you learn Bible verses, John 3.16 is the one you learn. You can memorize it. We wouldn't even have to look at the words on, this, on the Bible page today. You all would know this verse. It is the one of the most memorized verse. However, like I said earlier, it's one of the most misunderstood verses. And some of the verses that we think it, 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 we've heard of our life and we assume we know what it means, they're the ones that we really get wrong a lot of the times. And today, I believe, is one of those that uh, what is being spoken here in this verse uh, sometimes gets missed. John 3.16 does not deny the doctrine of election. That is one of the verses that people will use to dispute the doctrines of grace. Uh, that, that doesn't, it does not do that. It does not deny definite atonement or that Christ died for his elect, does not, does not deny that. And it does not even describe who has the ability to believe or who does believe in this point. We will find from John's gospel account that as we work through it, we will find out who is the one who will believe. But in John 3.16, it does not tell us that. And so often it is read through the lens of tradition. Whatever your view is, that's what you bring to this verse. But what if we stripped that all away today and said, what does this verse say? What does it mean? What does it say? And when we do that, what you will find is the love of God so magnificent. And what you will find is a promise 
that the believer can hold on to for all eternity. That's what you'll find in John 3.16. With that being said, let's read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for that love. We thank You for the love that was shown by sending Your Son, Your one and only Son, the only begotten. Lord, it was by love that You sent Him, and it was by love that He laid His life down. And Lord, we thank You for this verse. Lord, we are sorry for the arrogance we have so many times to think we have verses like this 100% completely understood. Lord, we're sorry for bringing traditions. We're sorry for bringing our presuppositions to it, Father. And Lord, today I pray by the help of the Holy Spirit that You would open our eyes, that we would see this verse in its truth. And Lord, we would see it in the beauty that there is in this verse. Lord, this verse speaks of you and your magnificent love. And we ask that you help us. Open our souls to hear these words, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's what we do know about John 3.16. Without knowing the previous verses that came before it, we do not understand what's in view here. And just to recap for just a moment, what we left off with last Sunday night is these words in verses 13, 14, and 15. Let's just go back just for a second so we can catapult into John 3, 16. John John 3, 13 says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we went back to Numbers chapter 21, to these few verses in this account, this historical account. And and what had happened was the, the, the people wandering in the wilderness had been murmuring and complaining. And God brought uh, this punishment upon them. And He sent these poisonous snakes in multitudes to bite these people. That they would lash on and they would strike these people. And it would bring poisonous uh, death through their veins. And, And there was no way of escape of their own. And here these people have been bitten by these snakes. But God in His mercy and God in His love does not just let them just writhe around in their pain and die, but He does give them a way of escape. And He does that by telling Moses to take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift the pole up. And all those who had been bitten, if they would just look and and believe by faith that, that looking upon this bronze serpent on the pole, if they would just believe that that would be what would heal them, then they would live. You see, the thing we must understand is it was their murmuring and their complaining that brought this upon themselves. It was their murmuring and their complaining and their sin before God that brought about these poisonous serpents, that brought about the, the, the poisonous bite and the, of death that could be coursing through their veins. And if God was perfectly just, do you know what He, what he was required to do? Let them die. That's what a just 
situation would it look like? You brought this upon yourselves. You sinned against me. Therefore, you know what? This is what I have punished you with. This is judgment upon you. And you know what? That's what you deserve. He did not have to tell Moses to make a bronze serpent and to put it on a pole and lift it up. He did not have to do that. But God showed love. And God showed mercy to these people in the wilderness. And He made a way for them to live. Then we go to verse 15 and says, so that, it says, so that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Just as that they would look upon the serpent and believe in the Old Testament, Christ would be lifted up on a cross, and those who would believe in what he had accomplished and through his work, they would have eternal life. He's drawing parallels here. And then we come to verse 16. I mean, we could put it in, if we were going back to Numbers 21, we could say this, for God so showed mercy upon those people that he made Moses lift up a bronze serpent so that everyone who believed in that would live. That's a way that he showed love to those people that he did not deserve, they did not deserve and he did not have to show. But now we take it to a grander scale. We take it to everyone who has ever been born has the poisonous sting of death and sin coursing through their veins. And he does not have to offer a way of escape. He does not have to do anything because we are sinful, rebellious creatures who deserve judgment and wrath. He does not have to make a way of escape for anyone. We would agree with that. But he does. For God so loved the world... The question we have to ask is a couple things to get off the bat. Who is the world? And how much did God show His love? And I bet you've heard this before, and maybe you've done this before. When you get to this verse, and you say, For God so loved the world, and your arms reach out as far as you can, and it, it includes this universal love and this salvific love to everyone, and you say, This is how much He loved the world. But that's not what this verse is indicating. In the Greek translation, which to which this was written, it would have said this, for God loved the world in this way. You want to know how God loved the world? Listen. It's a very amazing love. For God loved the world in this way, or God loved the world in this manner, that this is what he did. That's how it would be read in the Greek. But here comes the the thing we have to look at. And we have to look at a couple different words as we begin to understand what this verse truly means. Because we come to the word world. And so often, people will say, well, this means every single person in the world that has ever lived. For God so loved the world. And then we say, well, there goes the doctrine of election. He died for every single person because God loved the world so much. But what does this mean? What is this word that is used in the Greek language? It is the word that we come from, comes from the Greek, meaning world, cosmon or cosmos. You've heard this before. When we look into the space and we see the cosmos, this is one of the words, uh, the derivatives that come from this word. 
but it is cosmon or cosmos here. So for God loved the world in this manner. For God loved the cosmos in this manner. But what does this word mean? Does this mean every single person, every single human being? Well, I think we should just go and look through the gospel according to John, who is the same author here that wrote John 3.16. And throughout the gospel according to John, you will see the, a, the word cosmos or cosmon used multiple times and have different meanings. It is not used the same every single time throughout the Bible. So let's look here and see if we can take every single human being and be consistent and use that in all these verses. We find our first one in John chapter 6, verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Now, does God give life to every single human being that's ever lived on this earth? Or does He give eternal life to every single human being? No. He doesn't. John chapter 12, 18 through 19. For this reason, all the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed the, this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are, are not doing any good. Look, however, the world has gone after him. And the Pharisees are seeing all these people follow Jesus and they say, look, the whole world has gone after him. Do you believe that every single human being on the planet was following Christ in Jerusalem? But if we... If we take the world in John 3.16 has to mean every single person, this is what we're left with. That God gives eternal life to every single human being and that every single human being on the planet followed him into Jerusalem. John 12.25 He who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Again, we see that in this world, he who hates his life in every single human being does that make any sense? It does not. Because the word cosmon or cosmos has multiple meanings. If you look this up, depending on uh, different views on this, that there could have up to 14 different meanings of this word. John 14, 16 through 7. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Well, this is saying the world can't receive him. But then John 3.16 says he came into the world. He loved the world so much that all those who believe in him will have eternal life. Is there a contradiction in the Bible? No. Because this word does not mean every single human being. John 15.19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you are not of the world, because I have chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. The Bible says those who believe are not even of the world. How does that make sense with John 3.16? It doesn't. Again, this does not mean every single human being. We're stressing this point because this is what the biggest contradiction and the biggest complaint about John 3.16 in comparison to Reformed theology stands. It's right here. John 17, this is the high priestly prayer, verse 5 through 9. Now, my Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So if we take that to mean every human being, with the glory I had with you before every human being was. That could be. But we go on, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. That they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that which you have gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly 
understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Here he's not even praying for the people that are of the world, but those whom the Father has given him out of the world. How does that square away with John 3.16? He says, for God so loved the world. There's so many of them here. And we could read all these verses that are on your sheet, and it would show that the word, word cosmos or cosmon does not indicate or have to indicate every single human being. Think about this. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world, neither the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So here Jesus is saying, if you love the world, the, world, the love of the Father is not in you. But John 3.16 means that God loved every single person in the world. And now we're not supposed to love the world? Again, you get contradiction after contradiction if you take your tradition and say, this must mean every single human being. For God so loved every single human being in a salvific way. That's not what this verse is teaching. We must be consistent. So what does it mean? Well, I think the Bible tells us that as well. What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. I believe the primary meaning of this when it references world is referring to the Jews and the Gentiles, which would have made up the whole world. You've got to think that the Jews believed it was them. They were the, the people of God, and then the rest of it was just the world. And we see that the mystery of the gospel with Christ being crucified on the cross, the, the barrier wall, the wall of hostility has been crumbled down. And now salvation is not just from the Jew. It starts with the Jew. Salvation is of the Jew, but it spreads to all the world. And we see this in multiple verses. Think about what Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The whole world, if you will. It's not limited just to Jerusalem. It's not limited just to the Jews. But salvation has been offered to the whole world, to the Jew and the Gentile. And we see a, another example of this in a very quoted scripture in Romans chapter 10, verse 11 through 13. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And we say, see, ha ha, whosoever. But what does the Bible continue to say as we read this? It gives us context. It says, for there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches abounding in riches for all who can call on Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not just the Jew, but also the Greek, the Gentile. It has been offered to all, the whole world. This is the, the view that is here. And I think the greatest proof of this comes in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Remember, this verse in John 3.16 is talking about how just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross. It's talking about His crucifixion. It's talking about the blood that would be shed, the redemption that would occur. And now look what Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says. And they sang a new song... Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain. There's the cross. And what happened? And purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
It was not just bound to Jerusalem. It was not just bound to Israel. It was not just bound to the Jewish people. But God loved the whole world. Every tribe, nation, tongue, the whole world He showed His love for. And He would purchase with His blood those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we could look at it like this. An example I've heard is this. You've heard people say, yeah, I've traveled all over the whole world. Have you been to every square inch of this world? But you say that. Why? You're covering all, you've been all around it. But you've not been to every single square inch. I've traveled every place all, all over the world. Have you? You've been in every house? You've been in every city? But no. And this does not mean every single person, because if it does, you're going to find later that every single person will be saved. When we get to John 3, 17, that all the world might be saved, and we look what that word might means in the Greek, if we take that that word here in John 3, 16 means every single person, and we apply that same hermeneutics to John 3, 17, every single person will be in heaven. It's an impossibility. God loved the Jew. God loved the Gentile. He loved the world. It will be people from all over this planet that are in heaven because God loved the world. And how did He love the world? How did He do this? It says, He gave His only begotten Son. This would be translated monogenes, His only begotten Son. You know, in John chapter 1, we see this language in verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of His Father. Before the world was, before the foundation of the world, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they had communion and they had fellowship. And the Father and the Son are there. And we know that the Father is loving the Son with this absolutely extravagant love. It is the one who was there with him, the only begotten, the one that's in his bosom before all the world was, before creation, from all time past. It is the Father loving the Son. That's what John 17 says. And he loved the world so much that he sent this Son that he loved before the world was to die. That's how much he loved his people. The same love to which the Father loved the Son is the same love to which He loves His people whom He wrote in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. It is the love of the Father it being put on display because the ending of verse 18 in John chapter 1 says, He has explained Him. You remember that. He has exegeted the Father. If you want to see the Father, look to the Son. If you want to see the love of the Father, look upon the Son who's hanging on a cross because that is the love of the Father. He sent His one and only Son. That's His love. That's the love to which our God showed. He did not have to provide a way in the wilderness for those people to live. And He did not have to provide a way for us to live. But God so loved His people. God so loved the world that He sent the one whom He had eternal fellowship with before the world was into this world that He would hang on a cross. And the same Father who would love the Son from all eternity past would be the same one who would crush Him, who would bring wrath upon Him, judgment upon Him on our behalf. That's the love of the Father being exegeted through the Son on the cross. And if you were 
I mean, you remember, we're here, and he just got through talking to Nicodemus, who was a, a scholar of the, the Old Testament. When he hears the only begotten son or his one and only son and being sacrificed, I wonder what his mind would have went to. I bet it would have went to Genesis chapter 22 about Abraham and Isaac, because we know that he, Abraham, took Isaac on Mount Moriah, and it would be in that same area that Christ would die on the cross. It would be that same place that the father uh, in Genesis 22 that Abraham was about to bring wrath and judgment on his son and bring death upon his son. But he stopped him because that there would be one who would fulfill this. And it would be the father who would bring judgment and wrath upon the son. Not because he deserved it. Because he took our place. It would be in the same area that this would be fulfilled. But what's interesting about this is in Genesis 22 verse 1. or Excuse me, Genesis 22 verse uh, 2 it tells us that Abraham took his only son. Now stop just for a second. Think with me through this just a little bit. Did Abraham have any sons other than Isaac? Yes, he did. He had Ishmael. But we know that Ishmael was going to be also a sign of the law. And Isaac was going to be a sign of, of grace. We're going to know this, especially Galatians is going to tell us this. It represented two covenants is what it says. Ishmael was the old covenant and Isaac was the new. So why does he have more than one son? And it say that Abraham took his only son. This is referencing Christ. That Christ would take his one and only son. And we remember the beauty of that type and shadow that that Isaac carried his own wood up to the place to where the sacrifice would be made. Sound familiar? That the one and only son would carry the cross up to the place to where the sacrifice would be made. And most scholars will tell us that, Abraham, or, uh, that Isaac was not a small little child, but a young man to the point to where he could carry the wood up to the hill, up on that mountain all by himself. What does this speak of? Most scholars would tell us that they believe that Isaac was strong enough that if he wanted to overpower his father, he could have. If he wanted to overpower him and say, I am not going to let you tie me up. I'm not going to let you put me on this altar. I'm not going to let you kill me. He could have got out of it. But he was pointing to the monogenes who would carry his cross. And just like John chapter 10 says, this is the reason the Father loves me. I have the power to lay my own life down. And I have the power to raise it up. Do you know why Isaac just laid down on that altar? He trusted the Father. And he was pointing to the great sacrifice that would take place. when the only begotten Son would be crushed by His Father, but would trust Him all the way. He would provide the perfect sacrifice. And that's why He says, after the judgment and wrath had been poured upon Him, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. I trust You. Even though You crushed me, I trust You. It is Your plan. It is Your will. This is why he says his only begotten son. What's interesting about that story, there's a, there's a lot of things that are interesting about that story. Hebrews will tell us that that was a sign of uh, a type and shadow pointing to him coming back from the dead. And be, but there's also a little, I won't get too far on this, I promise. We'll stay in John 3.16. But it does not ever give mention that Isaac comes down off of that mountain. 
That's weird. He goes up with him on the mountain, but there's never a verse that says he comes down with him off the mountain. So where does Isaac go? Where's Isaac at? When is the next time we see Isaac? We see Isaac a couple chapters later. When Isaac is meeting his bride. And that's the story of Christ, isn't it? He carries his cross. He willingly lays down his life. The father crushes the son. And what does he do? No one has ascended to the father except the one who's descended. That is the son of man. He has ascended into heaven. And no one has seen him since. And when will be the next time we see him? When he comes for his bride. There's great beauty in that type and shadow, but this is what the Jew would have thought about. His only begotten son. That's who he sent. That's the love. He could not show more love to the people that he was going to die for than sending the one whom he loved before the world was. It's the same love upon us. He loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. And then we see the word that. That's what we call a henna clause, H-I-N-A. That's a purpose clause. Why did he send his son? Why did he show love by sending his son? Here comes the purpose clause in this structure. So that, if you would read that, so that, here's why. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There is so many people that take their theology from that one word. Whoever or whosoever. You've heard it. You've heard it. I'm a whosoever. Everybody's a whosoever. We're all whosoever's. This language here does not indicate what people that deny the doctrines of grace want it to mean. It simply does not. This is going to rock a lot of people's world, and some of you already know this. But do you want to bring devastation to someone who denies Reformed theology? You tell them to go look in the original Greek language. And you know what word you'll never find in the original Greek language? Whosoever. Not there. You'll never find it. So we say, what does this mean? In order that God sent His only begotten Son, in order that or so that, and here comes this little phrase. Here's what it says in the original Greek. Pos ho pasturon. That's what it says. And that's where the English translations take it and put whosoever. But do you know what this really means? All the believing ones. Now, would you say that's everyone? Or would you say that's a specific group of people? Does everyone believe? No. So, we've already started to limit the scope of this verse, haven't we? God so loved the Jew, the Gentile, the whole world, that He gave His only Son in order that all the believing ones would have eternal life. There's the purpose. He gave His Son. Without the Son, there is no eternal life. Without the Son dying on the cross, there's nothing to believe in. Without the Son being lifted up, no one has eternal life. 
But God gave His Son so that all the believing ones can have, will have, shall have eternal life. That's how the structure would be written. It would be God loved the world in this manner, that He sent His one and only begotten Son in order or so that all the believing ones would not perish but have eternal life. But see, this, this verse here doesn't tell us who will believe, does it? It just says all the believing ones. Does this mean every single person believes? No, it doesn't. But see, we must look on into the rest of the gospel account according to John, and we have clues on who will believe, don't we? We have it in the book of Acts. I think the book of Acts is in, in chapter 13, verse 48, is one of the greatest verses that tell us who will believe. Listen to what it says in Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, wait a minute, almost like the whole world, not just the Jew, but the Gentile. The gospel has spread over the whole world, hasn't it? Are you glad the gospel didn't stop in Jerusalem? It's through the whole world. Are you a Gentile? Yes. You should be thankful that he loved the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should all not perish, but have eternal life. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. You ready? And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? All those who were appointed to eternal life. That sounds like election to me, doesn't it? God sent His Son. So the ones who He wrote their name in the land's book of life, when they believed in Him, they would have eternal life. That's the henna clause. So that they could have eternal life, He sent His only begotten Son. That's the purpose. All the believing ones have this promise. That if you believe in Christ, you will have eternal life. I don't know, really know how we get around that verse. For God so loved the world, He gave His Son that whoever believes, and then the Bible tells us that all those who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Not everyone, but those who have been appointed. Who appoints them? The election of the Father. Philippians 1.29 says, For it to you has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. So it is in this verse that it tells us that it has been granted to us the ability to believe. We see in John 6, 35-44, verse 65, we won't get into this now, but all the Father gives to the Son, they come, they're the ones who believe. John 10, he tells the Pharisees there that you cannot believe me, you do not believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear me, my sheep believe me, my sheep come to my voice and I give them what? Eternal life. In John 17, that whole chapter, just read it. You'll see that there's a group given to the Father, and those are the ones who believe. And what's interesting in this is that the word in the Greek, all the believing ones, is not in a past tense form. It's in a present tense form. It's not like it's this one profession of faith way back in the day, and then it stops. No, this is the perseverance of the saints. All the believing ones, the ones who continue to believe, the one whom the shepherd holds, the one whom the high priest intercedes for, it is those true ones that have been appointed to eternal life will believe, but also keep believing. This is an ongoing, present, active word that is in view here. And in the English term, whoever, this is meant to communicate all without distinction in a particular group. 
So the whosoever here is meaning a specific group of people. And who is that? Those who believe. That's who's in view here. This verse is pointing to those who will believe. Just like in the wilderness, the ones who lived are the ones who what? Believed that looking upon the serpent, upon the pole, would bring about their life or save their life. This verse is very much pointing to the believing ones. It's a promise to the believing ones. And then he says this, whoever believes in him will not, shall not perish. Well, who will not perish? Well, let's look at some of the verses here. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, don't they? You know that verse? You know that verse. She, she knows that verse. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They're the believing ones. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you see the consistency of Scripture? Who believes? Those who have pointed to eternal life, they're the ones who believe. Who's this promise to? It's to the, all the ones who believe. It is the ones who believe that will not perish. John 17, 12, When I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you had given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so the scripture would be fulfilled. He was ordained to death. But all that was given to the son, he kept. And he gave them eternal life. Not one perished. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, another controversial verse, but speaking about the beloved, speaking about those that are chosen of God, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that is true. All the believing ones will come to repentance, and not one will perish. Do you see how this verse looks totally different when you start to really break this down? I mean, think about how this whole conversation has went with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, this self-righteous man, comes and says to God, he starts questioning the Lord. And then Jesus, in verse 3, says, you must be born again. Anothen, you must be born from above. What is required, the first step that is required in your salvation, Nicodemus, you can't do. It's from above. Matt preached a little bit on that today, and I know he did a great job doing it. It's not from you, it's not from us, it's not from the flesh, it's from above. You see, look how this flows. You must be born again. To what? To see the kingdom of God. Remember, there's, you can't see the kingdom, and then you can't enter the kingdom. You can't see the beauty of the gospel. Your heart has not been tilled to the right soil. None of that has occurred until you're born again. And those who are born again, they're the ones who see the kingdom of God. They're the ones who then see the beauty of the gospel. They're the ones who will believe. But no one can believe in their own fallen state unless they're born again. This is why the first part of this chapter is it's, it's so important. It sets the foundation. You must be born again to believe. For you to believe, you must be born again and you can't be born again of yourself. This is a gift of God's grace and mercy. And the gift of grace and mercy and love doesn't just stop at, at His causing you to be born again. 
but he also sent his son. His only son. The one he had fellowship with for the foundation of the world. He loved his people so much that he sent his son. to live a perfect life, to be lifted up on a cross, to bleed and to die, so that all those whom He had written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world could believe in Him. And in that belief, it would bring eternal life. You see, when we understand how big God is, when we understand how holy God is, when we understand how much the Father loved the Son, stop and think about that just for a moment. How much can you, in your human mind, imagine that the Father loved the Son? Before the world was, before there was anything, the Father was loving the Son. But for God so loved the world. He loved His elect so much that He sent that Son. In order that all the believing ones would not perish, but have eternal life. You see, it's the glory of the Father. It's the trying work of God. The Father gives to the Son. The Son goes and dies for those whom the Father has given, and the Holy Spirit regenerates us and seals us. I'll close with this. That the Bible tells us that Jesus was the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And your name was written before the foundation of the world. In the Lamb's Book of Life, those who would believe. And I just want you to go back to the wilderness just for a moment. Just for a moment, go back to the wilderness and picture in your mind these people bitten by this poisonous snake, these poisonous snakes. Death, just moments away. Moments away. And knowing they do, do not deserve anything to keep them alive. God does not owe it to them to give them a way of escape. God does not owe it to them to heal them. It was their own sin that brought this upon themselves. He would have been perfectly just to let every single person die. If we don't get that, we'll never get John 3.16. You have to understand the snakes in the wilderness to understand John 3.16. But God in His mercy made a way 
so that those who would believe in, in the way of escape in the wilderness by looking at the serpent would live. He made that option. He didn't have to. He did that out of mercy. And we talked about it before, that there were so many people who were writhing in pain, death moments away, the answer right in front of them. All they have to do is look at it and live by faith. But there were so many that just chose to die. And the same goes true today. God did not have to send His Son. He did not need anything. It was our sin that brought about our damnation and our destruction and our condemnation. And if God did not provide a way of escape, do you know what we could still say? That's perfectly great and righteous and just. He could have let us writhe around in this earth with a poisonous thing of sin coursing through our veins. But God so loved the world that He provided a way of escape so that we did not have to die. And it wasn't a bronze serpent that He sent on a pole. He sent His one and only Son. And you know what's sad? The message of the gospel goes out today, doesn't it? And we think it's crazy that people would sit and die on the wilderness floor as opposed to look at their answer in front of them. But the same goes true today. The message goes out. And people are literally choosing to die in their sin. Why? It's right there. Just look at it. Look at him. He's the answer. And why don't they? Because they've never been born again. They've not been born from above. And in their fallen, sinful nature, the only choice that makes sense to them is to refuse the answer that gives them life and choose to die and live forever in hell. But those who've been born again by the mercies of God, He's provided an escape to which we believe. And by believing in Him, you have eternal life. That's the whole point of this gospel account. John chapter 20 says this, verse 30 through 31, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Do you know what you've just heard in John 3.16? You've heard an eternal plan. But if you listen really close, do you know what you've heard? One of the greatest promises that a believer will ever hear. That if you truly believe by faith in Christ, and you truly call out to Him, do you know what you'll find? A perfect Savior. And you know what else you'll find? Eternal life.
I'll end with this one thought. Why does the Bible tell us that we love Him? All those who believe, why do we love Him? Because He first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love. Lord, we thank You for this verse that we have misunderstood. Lord, we're sorry. But Lord, we thank You that You've been gracious to us, Lord, to begin to see the truth of what this verse reveals. Lord, we've heard a promise today. Lord, we've heard a plan that began before the world was. The election of those who would believe. The Lamb of God chosen and slain before the foundation of the world. All having this fulfillment in time and space when the Son laid down His life was lifted up on a cross, laid down His life in order that, so that everyone that believes would have eternal life. Lord, that's the promise that we can tell the world. Lord, we have a message to tell the world. If you believe in Christ, if you believe in the, the one and only Son of God, the Son of Man, if you believe in His perfect life, if you believe in His death upon the cross, the atonement for the sins of those who would believe, if you believe that, then you will find a perfect Savior and you will have eternal life. That's the message of the gospel. We can tell that, but you must believe. And we can tell everyone that everyone that believes will never be disappointed. But you will find a perfect Savior that gives you life. Lord, to this we thank you. Lord, we thank you that the reason that we who believe can believe is because of you. That you've brought us from death to life and you've loved us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, we thank you for this verse. You sent your one and only Son to redeem us, to purchase us. And for that we thank you. Lord, to you be all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.